Good evening to everybody. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming out and for your patience. Um, I wanted to thank Dr. Tate and everybody at the Africana Studies Department for all their support and all of their help. Um, and I definitely, I, I want to thank Dr. Tate specifically for her spirit of inclusiveness and including all of the narratives that are relevant to the Africana experience. And this is something that I think she, I've all, she's given me the impression that is very important to her. Because a lot of times we tell the black history as if it is a single history. And it's, it's many histories, it's many stories, it's many threads. And um, this is a program that is celebrating that. So I wanna give her an, a special thanks for all of the work and support that she's given me in bringing this issue to the forefront. Um, thanks to Dr. Ramsamy and everybody else, my colleagues at the New Brunswick Islamic Center who have co-sponsored this program and all of the panelists for coming out. And a special thanks to my youngest daughter for coming to the lecture even though she um, was deeply disappointed when she found out that we weren't actually having fish, grits, and couscous here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, have to give her her credit there. Okay, basically, I want to talk about everybody's favorite topic. I mean, we're now we're we're talking about Muslims, we're talking about African Americans, and now we're going to pile women on top of that equation. You know, so we're we're getting, you know, I'm getting all of the all of the bullet points here, all of the lightning rods that are going to come together in this presentation because one of the things that some of the other speakers have reiterated over and over again is that it's important when you're talking about Islam in America, it's important when you're talking about the black religious experience that you can't separate Islam in the United States from black people or black people from the story of Islam in the United States. And in that same vein, our conversations about women, gender, women's issues, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a black woman, these are all inextricably connected to the same issue. It's the same thing. You know, we talk a lot about Muslim women in general. When most people think about Muslim women, when people talk about Muslim women, I mean, most people, if I did a survey right now, I'm sure a lot of people who may not be as familiar with, with who Muslims are and what we do would tell you a lot about you know certain images that you get immediately you get and you get images of passiveness and oppression and and things like that so for a lot of people that's the first thing that comes to mind we are we meaning muslim women are typically topics of conversation but not participants in the conversation and people talk about us but not to us and that's unfortunate because you just miss a valuable about a very valuable perspective when you do that so african-american muslim women in particular are an invisible to the point of you know i don't even know what to you know how to explain because basically a lot of our images also of muslims being from somewhere else muslims are not indigenous to the united states muslims are not part of here so so muslim women are from some exotic place across the ocean but we don't talk about, I mean, even when we've talked about Muslim women's issues post 9-11 ad nauseum, you know, how many people actually think of a black woman when you talk about American Muslim women? We had, we've had so many conversations in the media about what does it mean, can Muslims be American and Muslim? My ancestors were enslaved in this country. My family history, I know, at least goes back six generations. I know who my progenitor was in slavery you know, my great-great-great-grandmother. So if I'm not American, then, then nobody is. That's kind of, 
you know, what I want to address, I want to, you know, bring some of these stories to the forefront because there's just, you, there's a lot of information, there's a lot of things that Muslim women have been doing, African-American Muslim women in particular, that's important to recognize and celebrate. I'll also tie in the general issue of overlooking women's accomplishments in history. When we talk about the civil rights movement, we talk about Martin Luther King. We don't talk about Joanne Robinson or Ella Baker or people like that. And some people will probably say who are, don't even know who those people are. So women's accomplishments and achievements in general in doing the work that moves history forward is often just ignored and not, you know, not recognized. So that dynamic is at play here as well. So we have a bunch of things going on at once. So I want to highlight two spheres of activity with regards to African-American Muslim women. And that's kind of within the community and outside of the community. There is some overlap, of course, you know, not everything, it, you know, dichotomies aren't clean and things like that. But um, within the community, African-American Muslim women have been active as organizers, educators, social workers, laborers. They've managed organizations. They founded some of these organizations. Um, they've been active in areas of cultural production. There's, you know, one nice example of this is a, a Muslim women's theater company that is based in Atlanta. So there's, there's a lot of different arenas that, that we've contributed to. You know, poetry, you know, one of the things that's, you know, any, you know, I see there's some, you know, African-American sisters in the room can tell you that one of the favorite pastimes in, in black Muslim communities amongst the women are fashion shows. And these are like areas where our standards of dress and modesty are celebrated and the creativity that one can exercise within that realm is, is, is very dynamic, actually, if you ever get a chance to go to one of these events. So outside of the community, the, the role has been, um, in a lot of ways, as ambassadors because of the distinctive dress, particularly, because of the funny names, because of the weird practices and all of these other things that you have going on, um, the visibility factor is, is very important. And, it, and it's, 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 it's really when you go out, okay, and you look a particular way that's different from what everyone else looks like, a lot of times, you know, everything you do for good or ill is scrutinized and watched. And the Muslim women, American Muslim women in general, and specifically African-American Muslim women, by virtue of their being active and uh, having been active in so many arenas in public life, they open up space for the rest of the Muslim community. So in other words, they're basically the people that go and, and carve the tunnel so that the rest of us can walk through. Oftentimes serve as lightning rods for public sentiment, you know, positive and negative. Um, I can, you know, say for example, I have experiences personally where I'm walking through a, a fairly rugged community with some shady characters, <laughs> you know, invo involved in shady activities on the sidewalk where I walk, but they'll see me coming and say, take the crap game, move it out of the way, the sister's coming down the street, you know, and, and, and that is, uh, that's a result of the fact that there are some Muslim women that came before me that who, who paved that way, you know, they, they were, they, they made, a, there was a model of womanhood that should be respected, deferred to, whatever like that. So when I go into those same communities, I reap the benefits of that, you know. Now on the negative tip, I get stopped in the airport more than I think is chance. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because there was, there was an occasion when I was traveling with my husband. We were together. So if we were up to something, we were probably both in on it 
together. He was walking slightly ahead of me. He walked through security and they let him, you know, he's a black man. He's not a suspicious character in an airport. You know, when he gets in his car, it's a different story. But, <laughs> but in the airport, they're not looking for him. Now, I walk right, you know, two steps behind him and they pull me to the side and they're putting the wand all over me and all this other stuff. So it's just, it's interesting to, to note like how women do bear the brunt of a lot of the public gaze. So I want to, I mean, these are just some interesting pictures of, you know, Betty Shabazz is up here. There's a sister down at the bottom who is a police officer. This is, you know, law enforcement parade in New York City. Clara Muhammad is in the corner on the bottom, you know, and Noble Drew Ali's wife, Pearl, is the image towards the left, the, the right-hand side at the end. The sister at the end actually founded and is still the publisher of Aziza magazine, which is one of the most prominent. It is certainly, I think, one of the first glossy Muslim you know, lifestyle magazines that was developed in the United States. So Muslim women are doing a lot of different things. So I just want to get on to the next slide. Just to give you some basic background, there are a lot of examples of Muslim women throughout Islamic history in public life because a, a lot of the public conception is that Muslim women don't really do anything other than, I don't know, sit. Some of the prom prominent examples of that is Aisha, who was the wife of the Prophet Muhammad. She is still to this day considered one of the greatest scholars in Islamic history, period. Um, she's narrated hadith or traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, who, which are used as a second source of Islamic law. And she narrated thousands of those, I mean, just a ridiculous number of those traditions that are attributed to her, including, for example, the, the Muslim belief is that the Quran was revealed by an angel directly to the prophet and um, the circumstances in which the first revelation came down because it wasn't like the book came down. Muslims don't believe that it just came down like in a lump sum. It was, you know, piecemeal on different occasions. And the first occasion where he, where he you know, hadn't received the right, you know, this is when he's told he's a prophet and so on and so forth like this, the, the sole person who narrates that tradition is his wife, Aisha. So I mean, this is something that is extremely central to Islamic belief and you know worldview and this woman is responsible for transmitting that to the rest of us all of these centuries later so she's very important is you know her sister played a pivotal role in bringing food to her father and the prophet when they were hiding out from the meccan the Quraysh who were chasing them like they were fleeing from mecca to medina they hid out in the cave to kind of throw their pursuers off the trail and one of the things that her sister Asma did was to bring them food kind of in secret while, while they're hiding to throw, kind of throw their pursuers off of the trail. So these women were involved from the time of the Prophet onward. Nusayba was another companion of the Prophet Muhammad. She, and the, one of the battles where the Muslims, in, you know, kind of tangled with um, the Meccans in the Battle of Uhud, she kind of, she was, she went along to be present at the battle as a nurse. But it turned out that you know, long story short, the battle started going against the Muslims, and a lot of the people, a lot of people who were fighting had fled and had gone somewhere else, and there was just maybe, there was less than 10 of his companions that stayed to kind of shield him, because now his body is exposed, and they're, they're shooting arrows and so on and so forth like that, and they formed a human shield around him you know, had their swords and whatever. She was one of these people. She saw that he was exposed. She got up, she got a sword. As a matter of fact, you know, there was another person who, you know, another male fighter who was not really doing much of anything. 
and he had a shield, and the prophet instructed him, give your shield to the one who's fighting. Give your shield to Nesaba, because you're not doing anything with it. But So women were there, and they were active, and they were invested in the community, and you can't really separate their story out from you know, everyone else's story. Just quickly, Umdarda, she, this is another woman. She was a Damascus religious scholar who, who taught in the famous Umayyad Mosque there. Nana Esma'u um, was the daughter of Sheikh Uthman Danfodio, who was the leader of the Nigerian, you know, Sokoto Caliphate Jihad in the 1800s. And she was, you know, she was a scholar. She was a poet. She, there's a couple of bo- there are a couple of books available about her life. I mean, she's really an incredible person, persona if anyone's interested. With Muslim women in general, there's a tremendous amount of variation in cultural norms in the Muslim world. The Muslim world encompasses every culture on earth, basically. So you have very conservative societies, and you have societies that are less so, and you have everything in between. And so it's important to realize that when we talk about Muslim women, and this is, of course, relevant to African-American Muslim women because we have our own cultural realities to, to that, that come into play when we're telling our story. For example, just one indicator of that, the gender gap in, in education in Muslim countries, for example, is 0% in Iran. I bet you nobody would have predicted that, <laughs> given what our popular images of Iran are. To 73% in Pakistan. So there's a, you know, you can see that that's just, there's just a wide variety of how women live their lives in the Muslim world. And for African-American Muslim women, you know, we're contending with a mixture of our own cultural realities in addition to exposure to cultural realities from other parts of the Muslim world because we're, we're, react, we're interacting with Muslims from other parts of the world here. So some of that, you know, we grapple with that. Just to quickly show some perhaps surprising images of Muslim women doing different things, this is a top, uh, the top left image is a sister in the World Taekwondo Championships. We have Muslim women performing some type of surgical procedure in the picture next to it. Um, the bottom left picture is are some graduates, uh, university graduates from Iran. And the, the, the last picture is a picture of some Muslim women in Tunisia protesting. And I mean, if you can see what the sign says, they're talking about like some of these places where Muslims are being under occupation or, or having, you know, like kind of military issues in their lives and they're kind of protesting some of these things, you know, Iraq, Palestine, so on and so forth like that. So these women are out doing their thing basically. And this picture on the next slide I just included because it was so cool. <laughs> Um, this is in India, you know, this, this, you know, girls dojo, and they had a bunch of different pictures. I didn't put all of them up there, but that was just really cool. So I just wanted to show you that. And I didn't include any of the normal images that you see in the New York Times because we've already seen those ones. We don't need to see them again. For the purposes of my discussion, African-American Muslim women, I'm including both the Orthodox and the you know, heterodox movements because basically you you can't, even though the, 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 the creed and the ritual is definitely different, there's so much cross-pollination, you can't really sort those stories out and say, well, this didn't impact that. Because not only did the ideas move back and forth, because you have groups operating in one location competing, competing for followers or so on, but you also have a lot of people who have gone through one movement to the other. So they, they've transitioned, you know, they started out in the Moorish Science Temple. Maybe they went to the Nation of Islam after that or vice versa, or whatever. So there's a lot of kind of interplay between these various movements. So when I'm telling this particular story, I'm including all of 
all of the everything, everybody who self-identified as Muslim because it's, it's kind of a part of the greater narrative. So um, basically, we, you know, as I said, we've been very active in building institutions in a Muslim community. As with women, a lot of times is the case, you know, because women are the most vulnerable um, members of society economically a lot of times and so on and so forth. You see this presence most heavily in issues of charity, social services, you know, education, because women are also cons always concerned with their children. You know, I miss the visibility factor I mentioned and, you know, the tendency to overlook Muslim women's contributions is kind of a general tendency we see. In Antebellum America, I mean, Dr. Diouf, of course, alluded to and she shows some pictures. One of the, you know, one of the characters that you, you hear is this woman, you know, who was a slave in South Carolina, old Lizzie Gray, who supposedly converted to Christianity. She was born a Muslim, but she, you know, at an old age said Christ built the first church in Mecca. So she's like, she kind of, you know, it's hard to know exactly what she was thinking when she said that, but it's, it's really interesting that, you know, in her old age, she's, she's finding a way to reaffirm her Islamic identity sort of convoluted from our perspective, but it's, it's important because, she, you know, she was, so who knows, like, you know, of course we know people were forced into conversion a lot of times, so we don't really know what her circumstance was. But also it's important that to, to understand that women in general are, are a lot of times, you know, transmitters and carriers of culture. You know, you, you have a lot of reports from descendants of Muslim slaves remembering that they're, you know, as she mentioned, you know, they did the rice cakes, they would, you know, my grandmother used to pray, she wear a veil, she remembered Friday as a sacred day, she did all of these different things, even if they didn't maintain Islam, you know, the descendants, they, they remembered something. So that's, that's some, you know, that's something to, to celebrate as well. Um, Pearl Drew Ali was one of the wives of Noble Drew Ali, he, he had sort of a convoluted love life. Um, but she was one of his wives. She was very active in his movement. Um, she served as, you know, she founded the Youth Wing, the Young People's Moorish National League. She served as National Secretary and Treasurer for the organization, you know, and she just, she died not too long ago in 1994. The Sisters Auxiliary of the Moorish Science Temple was founded in 1928 by Sister Levine L. and nine other women and primarily was started as a social service. You know, there were women in need, families in need, you know, they they made sure that the people who needed help got it. And this is just a picture of some modern day Moorish women, but you can see they had, they had kind of a, dis a distinctive, I'm gonna keep returning to this idea of this, this distinctive look because it's very important. So just you know, some, some visual for that. Um, what's interesting to me about the, the Moorish Science Temple is that, you know, they were, pretty progressive in terms of women's leadership. They had women in major leadership positions in the organization back in the 20s. Um, and some of, some of the other Islamic movements are still kind of catching up with that, or trying to, or not trying to, as the case may be. For example, you know, M. Whitehead L. Well, she was apport, appointed as a Grand Sheikhess of Temple Number no. 9 in Chicago, and she was actually the aunt of Pearl Drew Ali, just as a little bit of trivia. She was one of the three officials who filed incorporation, the documents of incorporation for the, for the Morris Science Temple. So her name is on the paperwork. She was appointed governor in the organization, which is somebody who is over like a state or like a region. And there were other female governors in the organization around this time as well. They were also involved in various organizational activities, fundraising, Sunday schools. They spoke at conventions. They performed at conventions like, you know, singing and so on and so forth like that. And 
it's important that they were also very critical in keeping the organization intact. Um, I think Dr. Gomez was the one who alluded to kind of some of these like tangled issues that came up when some of these organizations got mixed up with Japanese nationalists or or accused of you know having done so. You know, they were targeted by the FBI, you know, a lot of, you know, and then, of course, they were, some people were involved in things that kind of land, you know, just law enforcement was just hot on the tail of a lot of these black organizations for sometimes legitimate reasons and sometimes illegitimate reasons. But be that as it may, the women, you know, with the male members of the organization being targeted so seriously, the women were charged with keeping the organization alive and running, and they did. So I want to move to the next movement, which we kind of, I think Dr. Gomez mentioned briefly, the Ahmadiyya movement is not an indigenous African-American Islamic movement. However, it's, it originated in India, and it's, it has um, a little bit of a different um, creed than orthodox Muslim you know, beliefs from the rest of the world. I mean, they have like some differences of opinion about the finality of the Prophet Muhammad and so on. But what, what's significant in terms of African-American Islam is that the Ahmadiyya came to this country as missionaries and they are heavily influential in a lot of these indigenous African-American um, Islamic groups. I mean, one of, the, one of the organization's missionaries was, you know, he was no, you know, Muhammad, Mufti Muhammad Sadduk who came in the 20s to the United States used to give presentations at, you know, Marcus Garvey gatherings on a regular basis, for example. I mean, so they, and they, then the Ahmadiyya movement targeted black people I mean, it was a multiracial movement, but they did focus a lot of their efforts on, you know, African-Americans, and a lot of African-Americans responded. She was an active propagator in this movement in New York. Um, she, her, she had poetry, you know, that she wrote um, about Islam and her belief and so on that was published in the movement's newspaper, The Muslim Sunrise. And her, her marriage was announced, you know, in one, in one of the issues in 1922. And she, apparently she married somebody who I think was of Indo-Pak descent and they, you know their names and that's kind of how the announcement reads. So she was, she was a soldier from what I can tell. And a little bit more about her, just um, her name was Ella Mae Garber, that was her, her birth name. And this is one of the things that the brother that I mentioned, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, he edited the newspaper and he, this is what he wrote about her. Um, he called her Sadiqa Tunnisa Rahatullah, and that her her name that name actually I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but that name Sadiqa Tunnisa it means like truthful amongst women, and it's it's also to me it struck an immediate chord because the the name Sadiq like truthful it means kind of like you know it was given as an honorific to Abu Bakr who was a companion of the Prophet Muhammad and just affirming that he stood by him, he believed whatever he said, he, you know. And so just kind of that, for, for me as a Muslim, it struck me that there's a possibility that there was kind of a parallel there. I don't know that for sure. It, it you know, it kind of rang to me. So that was, that was what he wrote about her. So she was kind of extraordinary. Let's move along here. Here's just a picture of one of the Ahmadiyya movement gatherings in 1947. As you can see, there are a number of African-American faces and, and some others that are, you know, from other backgrounds there. Clara Muhammad from the Nation of Islam. She's the wife of Elijah Muhammad. One of the things that is very significant about her is that she's actually, you know, by many accounts, the one who introduced Elijah Muhammad to Farad Muhammad, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam. So literally, without her, there is no Nation of Islam. There's no Malcolm, there's no Muhammad Ali, there's nothing. 
<laughs> you know. So that's that's just in and of itself. She heard about this this man from a neighbor of hers, you know, took her husband and the rest is history kind of. Um, and she also became the Supreme Secretary of the NOI because her husband, as was alluded to in some of the other presentations, her husband, there was some inter-organization turmoil. He's on the run from various rivals for a period of years. And then he's also, he runs into legal trouble with the government for draft evasion charges. And while he was away, she basically kept the organization together. Um, so um, that's, that's important. She was instrumental in establishing the University of Islam, which was the Nation of Islam's educational um, this is where they took their kids out of public school and taught them at home. She's an early pioneer for homeschooling, okay, which was illegal at the time. And they actually got into some legal beef about this. Elijah Muhammad was arrested behind having taken these kids out of public school. Um, and the schools that are run under, you know, the schools that her, when her son took over the Nation of Islam after the death of his father, they have schools in this organization that are still affiliated with that movement and, you know, with the various mosques in each city, and they're named for her. They're Clara Muhammad schools all over the nation. Um, she died in 1972. And um, in general, in the Nation of Islam, the way the structure worked was that women were given authority over other women. So you had, like, kind of your, your FOI, which was the male wing where they did martial arts and, and all of that. And then you had women captains and so on and so forth like that who other women reported to you know so a and ava muhammad was appointed as the national secretary in 2000 that was the first woman to that was the position that malcolm used to have the nation of islam again you know with this distinctive dress code one of the other things is that i mean there there are many images about what black women are like or what they should be like in terms of loose sexuality and, and not feminine and so on and so forth like that and the nation of islam i believe is very in, instrumental in combating some of those images because they constructed an, a, their own model of what African-American womanhood looked like. Getting to Sunni Islam very quickly, the first Muslim mosque of Pittsburgh is one of the oldest African-American mosques in the country. There is a sister, Rashida K. Dean, who is one of the founding members. Her name is on the incorporating papers of the organization. She was learned in the community. She taught. So her name is everywhere. She's very, very instrumental in that community. Mother Khadija Faisal, um, this is the woman who is associated with the State Street Mosque in Brooklyn, which is a very historic organization in African-American Islam. She's a co-founder with her husband of that organization, and she's been very influ She She died in 1993, and actually, like, when she died, the New York Times reported on her death. And several hundred believers of all nationalities attended her funeral prayers. She was very, very, anybody who is familiar with, like, New York Islam knows her and knows her story. The Darul Islam movement grew out of the State Street Mosque. Um, they were famous, among other things, for being active in prison outreach. You know, some sisters that were involved in that movement, there's a longtime sister who's still a prison chaplain in Reichler's Island who came out of that movement. One of the sisters who was instrumental, she used to teach sisters classes in this organization. She previously had served as a secretary to Malcolm X and then later served as a secretary to Mayor Dinkins, and actually in her position as Mayor Dinkins' aide, she was able to obtain like parking privileges on Muslim holidays for all, you know, all of the Muslims in New York City still benefit from. Getting to the end of this, just some more pictures. You see these are African-American Muslim women in some places where you might not expect to find them. 
Um, Dakota Staten was a jazz singer in the 1950s. Her husband was Talib Dawood. He, uh, he also converted to Islam. Um, she was you know, popular in the 1950s, and she actually performed under her Arabic name for a while. This sister in the middle, Kimberly Webb, she's, she's currently a Philadelphia police officer. She's involved in litiga litigation with the Department for the Right to Wear her, her Scarf on the Job. This woman at the bottom, I couldn't get a picture of her on the bench, but the sister in the, in the black scarf is a judge in family court in Baltimore and is widely believed to be the first Muslim woman judge in the U.S. This top picture is a picture of the basketball team from the W.D. Muhammad High School basketball team in, in, in 2000. They were, they were featured on ESPN um, as, uh, because they, they had this amazing season and so on and so forth like that. But they played in sweatpants, headscarves, you know, in Georgia. You know, they a lot of times got hollered at by crowds, you know, terrorists, this, that, and the other. But these young girls kind of went out there and took care of business. And this last picture is a picture of some sisters from the Gamma Gamma Chi sorority, which was founded by a, a Muslim mother and daughter team. They're it's the first Muslim sorority in the United States and they're, they're growing. Basically, just to end, the, the American Muslim community as a whole has been grappling with issues of identity and definition basically from the beginning. And African American Muslim women, I think our challenge is to find a space in this dialogue that that's true to our Islam and that's true to who we are as African Americans and so on and so forth like that. But that's an ongoing conversation. Um, issues which affect the African American community as a whole also affects subsets of the African-American community, meaning, you know, Muslims, meaning Muslim women. And finally, we really have to, you know, ensure that the rest of the world doesn't continue to render us invisible, because that's basically what's been happening up to this point. And it's, you know, it's, it's intolerable, basically, because our stories deserve to be told. So thank you, everybody, for your attention. And